Can President Biden bring the country back together and move it forward? Climate One conversations feature all aspects of the climate emergency, the individual and the systemic, the exciting and the scary. I'm Greg Dalton. Democratic control of the incoming U.S. Senate increases the odds that President Biden can assemble the team he wants to pursue his climate agenda. And not a moment too soon. John Podesta of the Center for American Progress says the time for incremental steps is past. We need bold, holistic action. We're going to have to say, what are we doing about cars? What are we doing about planes? What are we doing about ships? What are we doing about the power sector? And we're going to have to be all in on making change happen in those sectors. We'll speak with Podesta later in the program. But first, former New Jersey Governor Christine Todd Whitman, head of the Environmental Protection Agency under President George W. Bush. She believes the new EPA administrator, Michael Regan, should waste no time when it comes to undoing the damage done by the previous administration. One of the first things they ought to do is go to the various entities within the Division of Water, the Division of Air, each and every one of those, and to tell them that science matters now, that EPA is back on track to protect human health and the environment. Whitman joins me now, along with Chuck Hagel, former Republican U.S. Senator and Secretary of Defense under President Obama. Both Whitman and Hagel are board members of the American Security Project, a centrist group of senior government officials, military officers, and business executives. When we spoke this week, the nation was still reeling from the violent assault on the nation's capital by Trump supporters who were attempting to prevent Congress from certifying the election of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. As a Vietnam veteran and two-term Republican senator from Nebraska, Hagel has strong opinions about the events that transpired that day. Well, I think uh, every American believes what they saw last week was disgraceful, uh, was shameful. As to what should be the consequences uh, of those who perpetrated this and who took part uh, in this insurrection and invasion and destruction of the Capitol, there should be severe consequences. Um, Certainly those who participated and uh, who crashed into the Capitol and did violence to other people. As you know, five people lost their lives during this time, uh, but also those who were responsible for inciting it. And I have to say, uh, I think that includes the president of the United States. I'm very sad to say that uh, as an American uh, who has served this country and had the privilege of serving this country in many capacities, to have to say that the president of the United States uh, was involved in the insurrection of what we saw last week in our nation's capital. He needs to be held accountable, just as uh, those who invaded and did damage uh, to our capital. If you were in the Senate today, would you vote to remove him from office? I would. And how about your former colleagues, uh, Ted Cruz? I don't think Josh Hawley was in the Senate when you were there. What about senators who supported this? Uh, I can't think of a more irresponsible act uh, that could have been done by uh, any of my colleagues. I've never seen a more irresponsible uh, act by any of my colleagues when I was in the Senate as this. Uh, To witness what they witnessed, they were there. Uh, They underwent uh, all the protections that the Capitol Hill police gave them and whisking them off the Senate floor. They, They saw it. They were right there. 
but still uh, carry forward their preposterous notions and what the president has talked about since the election, actually before the election, that the election was fraudulent and was stolen when there's no evidence whatsoever. 60 lawsuits were thrown out by courts at every level, two of them by the Supreme Court, um, to show that there was nothing to it. But yet they went forward to ingratiate themselves with the Trump political base I suspect looking at their own political interest in being the presidential Republican presidential candidate in 2024, uh, I, I don't ever ascribe motives to people, but it seems to me that that has to be pretty clear uh, as a motive as to why they did it, because there was no evidence to show that anything was fraudulent in this election. Governor Whitman, you worked for Donald Rumsfeld during the Nixon administration and have been recently kind of estranged from your your party. You praised Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney, Maryland Governor Larry Hogan. Who who do you see now who are voices of conviction and courage um, in the, on the Republican Party? Well, those would be the ones I'd start with without question. Uh, I mean, there are others. Unfortunately, Mitt Romney's been very quiet. Uh, he was quiet on the 6th. He's been quiet since. Lisa Murkowski's the one that stood up and said things. You know, there there are a number of the senators who did get the message from what happened on the 6th, because when you started the uh, process of counting the electoral ballots, there were 14 senators that were going to object uh, after the riots, after they got back to doing it. There were six, maybe seven who still objected. And I agree with Secretary Hagel. They should face the same kind of punishment that, that, that the president should face. But probably that will be in the ballot box. And then it'll be up to us to remind people of what this has led to, because we're going to see more of this. There are Republicans who got the message. There are Republicans who never were on that side. They will be hopefully the leaders. There's the Problem Solvers Caucus in both houses, where you have an equal number of Republicans and Democrats who have worked together and will continue to work together. And with the Congress being as close as it is in both houses, I think you're going to see that they're going to uh, have more influence than before, and that's good. And hopefully enough of the rest of them were shaken up enough by what happened and their part in it and how they lived through it that they will step back and recognize that we've got big problems in this country with the coronavirus, which I would argue is climate-related, and until we get that under control, we can't get the economy growing back to where it needs to go. So there's a lot of work to be done, and both sides should be able to agree that those are issues that need to be addressed and then start moving forward on them. Governor Whitman, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will soon be inaugurated. How will the riot at the Capitol impact their ability to get serious about the pandemic, heal the economy, and restart efforts to confront climate change? Well, I think the big challenge is going to be those still 50 million people who believe this election was stolen because Trump's very strong base is not going to go away and they are going to keep pressure on their elected representatives not to be helpful, not to work across the aisle, not to enable Joe Biden to get this country back on track. Having said that, I also think that there are enough members on both sides of the aisle who recognize that that this pandemic is a an enormous issue that we have got to solve. And people are losing their lives as well as their livelihoods and their homes, and they're scared and they should be. Right now I'm in Arizona, which is the number one state for infections. And I still see people that uh, want to go out, want to party, want to go to restaurants and things. And you say, are you out of your mind? Uh, it's just 
for this period of time, we've all got to work together. But you're going to see, Joe Biden has said he wants to have that first 100 days wear a mask. You're going to see a lot of those Trump supporters who will not do that. Um, They just won't do it. They're still fighting the Trump war and they will continue to do it. So that's going to make it a little more, that's going to make it more difficult for those members on the Hill. But I still think there are enough who were shaken by what happened on the 6th, who are recognize that this is a problem we've got to get on top of if we're going to get the economy growing again. And that's the major issue we have to face. Secretary Hagel, you and Joe Biden left the Senate at the same time 12 years ago when it was, as Governor Whitman noted, a much more collegial institution. Uh, Joe Biden praised Mitch McConnell's speech after the riot. Do you think Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell can revive some of that collegiality and cut some big deals? First of all, um, I think if there was ever the right kind of leader at the right time for this country, it's Joe Biden. Uh, I know this guy very well. I've been all over the world with him, been in all kinds of situations with him, worked closely with him uh, for 20 years. And I know what he's about. Uh, He's like all of us. He's human. He makes mistakes. We all make mistakes. Um, But he has a core decency to him that is the beginning of everything. His priorities will be right. He's been around a long time. His judgment is good. His experience is good. And his appeal to the other party, his reaching across the aisle, as Governor Whitman noted, uh, when I was in the Senate, that's why you did it. I mean, you you worked with other guys and, and other people. You respected them. You fought like hell for what you thought was right and your philosophy. But in the end, you came together. You made it work. You move the country forward. You compromise. I know that's a terrible word today, compromise, but that's the way democracies work. And there's only one alternative to that, and that is anarchy and and authoritarianism. And you don't want that, I hope. I hope there's enough people in this country who don't want that option. But his relationship with McConnell is a good one. I've seen it close up for 12 years, longer than that. Um, they, they got along in the Senate. They worked together in the Senate. They, uh, both respect the institution. They both have their own approach and philosophy about things, but, uh, th- that's an important quality. I think a very important quality that Biden brings to this job. His style is to reach across the aisle. His style is to bring in the other side. I'll give you a quick uh, a story about Joe Biden. When the first meeting of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in, uh, in January of uh, 1997, I was elected in 1996, there were two freshman Republicans that came on to the, the committee, myself and Senator Gordon Smith from Oregon. And we were seated over on the Republican side of the dais. Jesse Helms was chairman. Biden was the ranking Democrat before the meeting started. And all the senators were there, Democrats, Republicans. And Joe Biden got up and walked around Jesse Helms and came over to the Republican side, put his arms on Smith and arm on me. And he said, welcome to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. We'll have a lot of fun. We're going to do a lot of work. We, I know we're going to have some disagreements, but uh, uh I just can't tell you how glad we are to have both of you here. And, uh, and if there's anything that I can do to help you guys, and that's Joe Biden. And that isn't going to fix everything. Of course not. But he's got, a, he's got an agenda of immense challenges and problems. But if you start with that, 
and as Governor Whitman said earlier, there are enough Republicans in the Senate who will respond to that. Let's move the country forward. Let's fix the problems. We start with COVID and everything that's associated and the consequences that COVID's had on our economy, on issues like climate. Um, so I, I'm optimistic. With, with all the problems we've got, I'm still optimistic. My guests today are Chuck Hagel, former Republican senator from Nebraska and secretary of defense under President Obama, and Christine Todd Whitman, former governor of New Jersey, who led the U.S. EPA under the second President Bush. They're both board members of the American Security Project, a centrist group of senior government officials, military officers, and business executives. Later in the program, we'll hear from former White House Chief of Staff John Podesta. Uh, Governor Whitman, you tweeted uh, that people will die because of an EPA rule that limits the use of scientific studies in crafting public health rules. We've seen the destruction of half a century of environmental productions. What's it going to take to restore the health of the U.S. EPA? And what do you think of Biden's nominee to run the agency, Michael Regan? Well, Pat, the only person I don't know personally that he has tapped to be involved with the environment and uh, with climate change is the, the incoming uh, administrator of EPA. I do not know him personally, but clearly his record is one of someone who believes in the issue, who understands the mission of the agency, which is simply to protect public health and the environment. That's really all it's about. Obviously, what has to happen is you have to start to rebuild the budget because it's been shorn year after year, particularly by this administration. The incoming EPA administrator has to really, I think one of the first things they ought to do is go have all hands meetings and then go to the various ent entities within the Division of Water, the Division of Air, all, each and every one of those, and to tell them that science matters now, that EPA is back on track to protect human health and the environment. That's what it's about. That's what he's committed to doing. And then with the the number, the, all the things that, that uh, President-elect Biden has said, all the people that he's appointed and their commitment to these various issues, science is once again going to become important. And that is, that's where we really have to rebuild. That's part of the institutional undermining that uh, this president has done, is he's not only undermined the public's confidence in any part of government, but particularly with the scientists. And we saw it with uh, the coronavirus. I mean, we are where we are today because this administration wouldn't take it seriously, wouldn't listen to the scientists. And they kept denigrating the scientists and pushing them off to the side. And particularly with the issue of climate, that this administration has stopped the scientists all across the government, not just at EPA, from attending conferences where climate change might be mentioned. They're not allowed to talk about climate change. To have NOAA be told that they cannot factor in the impact of global warming on the seas as they try to project out the storm seasons is mindless. We know that when the waters heat, as they have in our oceans, that that impacts climate and that impacts the frequency and severity of these storms that we've been seeing. And fortunately, the general public gets it. I mean, better than 50% of Americans and be better than 50% of Republicans recognize that the climate is changing, it's having a, a bad impact, and that we need and can do something about it. And it's uh, going to take that kind of commitment, but we have it finally from the top. And it's the administrator, the new administrator has to be constant in pounding that message that we believe in science, that we are going to ensure that we are protective of human health and the environment because that's the job of the agency. 
You're listening to a conversation about moving the climate agenda forward. Coming up, rejoining the Paris Agreement, if they'll let us back in. Right now, our allies, all those who are signed it, are looking at us and say, look, you guys negotiated this. We made changes in order to accommodate what you thought was important, and then you walk away from it. How can we trust you again? Hey, everyone. I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about Biden's climate opportunities with former Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel and former EPA Administrator Christine Todd Whitman. President Biden will face Republican opposition to his climate plan, but Whitman thinks that when it comes to bipartisan support, there could be some low-hanging fruit. Infrastructure is going to be the easiest of those, but I This administration and this president-elect has shown that he is absolutely committed to addressing the issue of climate because it it affects everything. It affects infrastructure. Where are you going to build? How do you build that infrastructure? How close, what do you do with states like mine and New Jersey that uh, are coastal states? Uh, What do you rebuild that's close to the oceans? Because you know what? That's not going to be the same in another few years. It's going to change. And how you build your, how you redo your infrastructure is going to be impacted by how climate might change things around that, wherever that infrastructure is. So it's going to be a, it's going to be a challenge. It's going to be harder to get people together on it. But what, one of the things we have to do is we have to do, take some concrete steps here in the United States that address the issue that show that we're serious about it. I mean, I, I agree, getting back in the, pri- in the Paris Climate Accord is going to be important, and the administration has shown it is going to do that, the new incoming administration. They're going to do that, and that's all well and good. But right now, our allies, all those who are signed it, looking at us and say, look, you guys negotiated this. We made changes in order to accommodate what you thought was important, and then you walk away from it. How can we trust you again? So until we take some steps around, whether it's around energy and whether and putting real money into more renewable energy, more research and development on that, whatever those steps are, we need to do a couple of things that are going to be difficult to get done probably, but we need to do them here before the rest of the world really takes us seriously and will negotiate uh, with us in the same way that they did before. I mean, they need us still. They want us. They want us at the table. Uh, we're still going to be important, don't get me wrong, but there's a skepticism that is there because of our past behavior, the way we've gotten people right up to the trough to drink the water and then we back away. So um, I do think that that one of the things that's going to be important is that they see some real signal here. Um, however, However it's done, whether it's a change in the way that the federal government itself uh, contracts, how important it puts climate change into the various contracts, energy conservation, water conservation, whatever they do. But we need to take some hardcore steps here in order to really get us back to a place where we can have the kind of influence that we had before internationally. 
uh, Secretary Hagel. Reporter Abram Luskarten recently wrote an alarming story in the New York Times magazine titled How Russia Wins the Climate Crisis. The article says warmer temperatures will increase Russia's agricultural production and transform Siberia into a more hospitable and productive region. John McCain once famously said Russia's a mob-run gas station. Do you agree that a global economy based on fossil fuels and this chaos we've seen benefits Russia? Well, no question about it. If that's where uh, we were going, if that's where the world was going, but uh, that, the world's not going in that direction, I, I don't believe. Um, the reality is we can't continue in that direction, and, and the benefit benefits Russia is clearly if we continue to rely on, on fossil fuels for everything. Uh, but fortunately, we're, we're not going to go that direction. But it's, it's going to be difficult, as we all know. Um, you know, it's interesting, and you all know the, the numbers on this, but I was reading over the weekend some of the results of what the climatologists have said happened in 2020. Uh, the uh, Northern Siberia, the Arctic, warmest year in the history of temperature keeping in 2020. The, the problem that uh, we're dealing with with Putin and with Xi and Kim Jong-un, um, other dictators, is that they don't really care about their people. Uh, they never have uh, their future, their quality of life, their health, uh, that everything is aff that's affected by climate. Uh, it's all about staying in power and selling gasoline and selling oil and doing what they need to do to keep their economy strong. And so we're different than that. Uh, Western democracies are different. Um, civilization is, is very clearly divided between those two to camps. And, and I think what we need to do in dealing with th those international renegades and outcasts who we, we know a lot about is, uh, again, what we were talking about here earlier, is uh, through the, the power of our example, as Joe Biden said, not, not the example of our power, but the power of our example and to work with our allies. And he's going to have an immense job Biden is to rebuild those alliances, those structures, those allies, those partnerships, those friends. And we've always needed those allies. Uh, I think we need allies in the world today and international institutions more than maybe any time uh, because of the, if nothing else, the problems are more complex. We've got 7 billion people on the face of the earth. Demographers tell, her, tell us we may have 2 billion more by 2050. Uh, that's just unbelievable to think of with, with if we don't deal with climate first in dealing with all of these issues, the droughts, the health issues, the, the falling of governments, uh, of economies. I mean, all the consequences that are going to come from this are so severe. So uh, we, we've got all these things that we have to assimilate and, and bring together and work together as we lead. And uh, but it all starts with leadership. It starts with example. It starts with working together, uh, as Biden has said, and, and I've watched him do it for over 20 years. Um, that's where we're most successful, this country, when we work together with our allies and our alliances. It's, that's based on common interests. Uh, all, all those 
institutions that we helped build lead after World War II in building a liberal world order. They were based on one thing, common interests. All those institutions couldn't fix everything. United Nations couldn't fix everything. But it brought countries and people together to try to fix problems that are common to all of us. And we still have our sovereign nations. We still have to work through differences. So I think you've got to come at it from, from that perspective, the whole. So Governor Whitman, you know, as we look forward, you know, climate's uh, such a long-term, uh, difficult uh, issue, you know, whether our democracy is, is kind of uh, crumbling. Where do we go from here? What, what's your optimistic future, look of the future? Well, I wouldn't say democracy is crumbling. I'd say it's been very severely challenged, and we have seen some of the weaknesses that we have in our system, and we can those can be addressed. Um, I co-chaired a task force on the rule of law and democracy with Pri Pahara at the Brennan Center at NYU, and we put out two reports with our committee, and Secretary Hagel was part of that. And we, uh, we've made a lot of recommendations of actions that can be taken uh, early on by the Congress, uh, laws that can be passed, things that, for instance, that you can't fire a federal, a special prosecutor or an inspector general without cause, that every presidential candidate and vice presidential candidate has to uh, disclose their taxes for five years before. Um, a lot of steps like that, as well as procedural steps within the Congress so that incoming members and younger, so that basically, so leadership doesn't have quite the power that they have today to prevent uh, things from being brought up on the floor, no matter how popular they seem to be, if leadership doesn't like it. But, uh, you know, our, our democracy is strong. We saw the, the votes finally being counted. And we know that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will be the, the new president and vice president. And that ushers in a whole different era for the country, because as the secretary said, uh, Joe Biden's persona is just so different. And his whole, his whole commitment is so different. His love of country is so different that uh, that's going to be a relief in and of itself. And so uh, there are plenty of actions that can be taken. There are a lot of suggestions out there. There are a lot of groups that are working on it and they will continue to work on it. So I don't think we're broken, but we're, it's fragile. And as Benjamin Franklin said, when asked what kind of a government he had, they had given us, he said, a republic, if you can keep it. And Abraham Lincoln said that if this, if this, and I don't, can't quote him exactly, but if, if this mighty experiment is to, is to fall, it will be from within. And that should be a message to all of us. We have a role to play in, in ensuring that that's not what happened. We've been speaking with Christine Todd Whitman, former Republican governor of New Jersey and EPA administrator under George W. Bush, and Chuck Hagel, former U.S. Secretary of Defense under Barack Obama and Republican senator from Nebraska. Joining me now is John Podesta, White House Chief of Staff under President Clinton and an advisor to President Obama. He's now chair of the Center for American Progress. We spoke before the assault on the U.S. Capitol. I asked Podesta what he saw as Biden's top climate priorities. Well, look, uh, Biden during the campaign and I think during the transition has made climate central to the economic recovery of the United States. The investments that he's proposed will be essential to transforming the economy from one of dirty energy to one of clean energy. And I think that 
what he's trying to do is organize his White House to deliver on that. And he's putting people in the cabinet agencies who have the ambition and and have the desire and have the knowledge and the experience to be able to deliver on that. The other thing that he did, which I think surprised people, in addition to making it central to, as I said, the economic recovery uh, and central to building a more just and equitable economy, he made it central to the national security posture of the United States by appointing John Kerry to be the special envoy, someone with that kind of experience, depth, uh, passion uh, for the issue, to make him a principal on the National Security Council, bringing climate into every discussion uh, or virtually every discussion uh, of uh, our security relationships around the world, really means that this is a very climate-focused uh administration. And I think both uh, President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris have been uh, demonstrating that from the, you know, in the campaign, but then from the day after the election. Clearly, President-elect Biden has the most ambitious climate plan that we've ever seen. And it's this whole government approach, putting a climate lens on everything. But, um, you know, I've both been in this quite a while. I'd like to remind people that in 1993, President Clinton, when you were serving in the Clinton White House, proposed what was essentially a carbon tax. Democrats had a 14-vote majority in the U.S. Senate and an 82-vote advantage in the House. The B2U tax died in part because of coal state Democrats. 2009, President Obama supported a national cap-and-trade plan to put a price on carbon pollution. Democrats had 58 votes in the Senate and, and 257 in the House, large majorities in both chambers. The climate bill passed the House and died in the Senate. So the last two times we've seen a new Democratic president in, come into office saying, I want to move on this with large majorities in, the, in Congress, it hasn't happened. How was this time different? So I think, uh, first of all, some good news. There was uh, the bill, the omnibus bill that uh, President Trump threatened to veto, but then in the end of the day signed, uh, contained some extensions of clean energy tax credits. Uh, it contained a very important provision, which will f uh, phase down uh, hydrofluorocarbons for people who don't know what those are. Uh, they're refrigerants that are used uh, across the uh, spectrum of uh, of uses from uh, from the auto industry to uh, commercial refrigeration to, to your home refrigeration, uh, they're very polluting, uh, super polluting, uh, and the uh, uh, bill that just passed in a bipartisan manner through the Congress uh, can uh, avoid a half a degree of Celsius global warming by the end of the century. So that's a big deal. Uh, there was an energy title that. Uh, was the strongest support on a bipartisan basis for uh, clean energy, along with other kinds of uh, energy uh, solutions, some uh, that divide Democrats like uh, carbon capture and sequestration. But there was there was movement, at least for the first time uh, in a long while. And uh, we saw re Republican support for uh, uh, at least parts of that. Uh, but going forward, I think the Republicans are still the congressional Republicans are sort of a lagging indicator. Uh, Republican voters, I think, want to see action. Uh, the Fox News poll, uh, uh, Election Day poll, said 72 percent uh, of voters overall. That included a, a, a majority of Republican voters or at least a, a plurality of Republican voters uh, wanted to see action on climate, I think. 
as I said, Biden made it a central part of his of his economic plan, uh, and he was rewarded with over eighty million votes. So I think I think we're at a moment where we have to move forward uh, with with aggressive action using all the uh, tools of the presidency, uh, including the capacity for executive action, regulatory action, et cetera, the convening power of the, of the presidency to move industries which are stepping up to make commitments both for 2030 and for uh, mid-century commitments in 2050 to align with Paris. We need mechanisms to hold make those commitments accountable. Uh, so there's a lot to do. Uh, I think the difference between now uh, and 93 and and quite frankly, in 2009, is that the approach is a little bit more disaggregated sector by sector. What are we going to do in transportation? How are we going to elect, move towards electrification of uh, surface transportation? What are we going to do uh, in the power sector? How are we going to essentially uh, uh, keep the promise that Biden made in the campaign to have a uh, 100% clean power sector by 2035? There are different tools uh, that uh, one needs to do. Those those tax credits that I mentioned are an important part of it, but we need more transmission. We need to align uh, incentives so that uh, state uh, and municipal governments can uh, really invest in more uh, clean energy and more efficiency. So these sector-by-sector approaches, I think, can work. Obama proved that, uh, it, particularly uh, during uh, his uh, implementation of the uh, Recovery Act in 2009, and then uh, the work that he did in the second term uh, to, again, move these things forward. So it's a little bit different than 93 and, and 2009. No silver bullet, but a lot of action and a lot more public sentiment for action. You're listening to a conversation about fulfilling President Biden's climate ambitions with John Podesta, chair of the Center for American Progress. This is Climate One. Coming up, rewriting the narrative on American jobs. Not just a story about what we have to give up, but what we can really build. That's the question we ought to be asking. What do we need to build to solve this problem? This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about the Biden climate agenda with John Podesta of the Center for American Progress. Despite Biden's pledge to be a president for all Americans, the nation today is more deeply divided than ever. As we've seen recently, some factions of the Republican Party are becoming increasingly radicalized to the point of contesting the outcome of free and fair elections. Earlier in the program, former Republican Senator Chuck Hagel noted Biden's longtime friendly working relationship with Republican leader Mitch McConnell. But can we hang our climate hopes on that slender thread? Look, you know, I'm a little bit skeptical. I've been through it <laughs> with both uh, with both Clinton and Obama uh, that, you know, you're going to get some grand deal with Mitch McConnell. You know, he's he's been uh, a protector of fossil fuel industries his, during his whole career in the United States Senate. But I, I think there is room for progress that can happen on a bipartisan basis. To give a specific example, I think you can get a pretty green infrastructure bill through this Congress. Uh, certainly, there's support for that in the House of Representatives. Uh, the Democrats passed a very strong bill, $450 billion uh, last summer. That was that was quite green. I, I think there's support for some of that uh, in the Senate. Uh, but again, I think you're going to have to pick these things off. You're going to have to be smart. 
I think creating a White House climate office under Gina McCarthy's leadership uh, with Ali Zaidi, who uh, worked with me in the Obama White House, uh, is a very strong start on putting together uh, uh, that whole of government approach. Not even just the whole of government, it's really the whole of society. How do you bring uh, together the private sector, the financial sector to get uh, this program accelerated uh, so that we can hit that net zero goal that uh, by mid-century that the science is, is, is uh, showing we need to do. You know, uh, I mentioned the, there's, more, there's stronger support in the public. And I, I think, it, you know, it bears saying, again, the reason for that is partly because of the greater analysis about the really devastating effects of, of climate change, but the personal experiences that people are having right now, not in 2050, not their grandchildren's experiences, but people are having right now the fires in the West, uh, the you know extended hurricane season, the most named storms ever uh, in the Atlantic, the devastation in the Gulf. You see it all around the world, the fires in Australia, the flooding in East Africa, the you know, 47 million acres uh, on fire in Siberia. You know, uh, people are experiencing this in real time. They know we got to deal with it. Uh, I think they're prepared uh, to see that uh, that uh, acceleration of innovation, of, of uh, the potential for job creation to create these new industries that are uh, that are necessary. I think people uh, can get behind it and it's going to take a president uh, rather than denying the sci- the climate science, who's going to just really lean into it, and I think uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are going to be prepared to do that. But there's that that response is based on the premise that that the public majority translates into policy action in Washington. And Jerry Taylor, who was on the right at the for conservative think tanks and now is a, a, something of a climate evangelist, schooled me on the fact that that doesn't always win in, in American politics. Look at guns. Uh, look at the right to choose. There's lots of issues where American public is on a different side than legislators because our politics are kind of broken. So I guess I'm saying that the public desire for climate action doesn't mean it'll happen. No, it's and it's a question of money and intensity on the other side, and and uh, I think that you, uh, while you've seen a lot of the uh, American private sector, uh, you know, kind of stepping up in their own uh, pronouncements and saying that they're making commitments in their in their own enterprises, you don't see that translated into lobbying on the Hill uh, for clean energy policies. Maybe that's beginning to change a little bit. Um, but, ten, but 10 years ago, there was an organization in Washington that had heavy industrials and oil suppliers, and they were organized and out front in public in support of specific policy. I don't see that now. I see lots of, yeah, we're we're greening our operations and these kind of comfortable incremental commitments from companies. They don't lobby on it. I don't see the business support for climate action that was there and public and organized 10 years ago. Yeah, well, I think they're on the wrong side of their uh, customers then, and they're certainly, uh, you know, anybody who's dependent on a younger workforce, they're on the wrong side of uh, of their employees, and and I think that that you know there needs to be movement, but there also has to be pressure, and uh, as I said, the the money has been stacked on the side of the fossil fuel industry. They spent a trillion dollars in. Uh, in 2009, uh, maybe I'm overstating that, they uh, spent a billion dollars in 2009 trying to defeat Waxman-Murkey. But it's going to take winning their politics of this, really. 
And but I think it's winnable. That's that's my you know central. Well, point. The, the Breitbart approach would be like to win, you got to break American politics. So so you know there's there's politics. Our politics are broken. Some of the problem is is coal state Democrats. Some of the leading Democrats are Joe Manchin and uh, John Tester, both coal states. They're in powerful positions in the U.S. Senate. So where do the politics need to break? Because this incremental action isn't getting us very far. The, yeah, the, I'm not. I'm not calling for I don't don't get me wrong, Greg. I don't think we can afford incremental action. And I think, you know, maybe that's the you know, if you if you said where would you get some agreement with Republicans, it would be for something like that, incremental action. We can't afford that. The the crisis is upon us. The devastation to uh human security, to national security, to the economic security of Americans, uh the differential impact uh, on, on on distressed communities, on people of color. It's right on us right now. So we need aggressive action. What I was really saying is it's probably going to be sectoral rather than one size uh, fits all solution that says all we need is a, you know, we just need to put a price on carbon. It can run through the economy. That's the most efficient way to do it. I don't, I think the time for that is probably past. We're going to have to say, what are we doing about cars? What are we doing about planes? What are we doing about ships? What are we doing about the power sector? And we're going to have to be all in on making change happen in those sectors at a pace uh, that's uh, that's consistent with, again, with the pledges that were made in this campaign. 100% clean power by 2035, net zero economy by 2050, uh, 40% of the investments going to to distressed communities. Those are big promises. We need to deliver on those. And that's hardly incremental. Uh, that's revolutionary in a sense. Uh, but uh, but it's not wrapped up in just one bill that's going to likely pass uh, Congress in, you know, in the first uh, few months. But one way or the other, we need to make those investments. And, and I think the administration has to organize itself uh, to uh, align with States and cities that want to go faster, that want to do more. Uh, and uh, I think you could see a lot happen uh, over the next couple of years and through the decade of, of 2030. We need to get about a uh, 50% reduction in emissions by 2030 to have any chance of getting to net zero by 2050. One piece of good news, though, over the weekend, uh, there was just some new uh, scientific reports that said if we can get to net zero, uh, we uh, will stabilize the the climate much more rapidly than I think people thought before. So that within a decade or two decades, you'd see the the at least the the you know the climate stabilize. We will have to still keep removing carbon dioxide both through natural means and perhaps through uh, air capture of carbon dioxide through the rest of the century. But that's really good news because. Before people thought, look, it's going to the, the uh, temperature is going to keep rising through, you know, really centuries beyond uh, what what we're doing now. Uh, the latest scientific information indicates that maybe we can, you know, we could stop the growth uh, in the heat load. Uh, within a decade or two of getting to net zero. Right. So the need is bold. That's that is very good scientific news. But, you know, back to, to the politics, 
um, after that 93 uh, introduction of a, basically a carbon price. In 94, the Democrats lost the House for the first time in decades with a contract for America. 2010, after a push on climate, um, Nancy Pelosi lost the gavel. Uh, the, you know, the, this, the, there's a very thin margin in the House this time. Uh, the Democrats have a favorable field in the Senate in 22. But those midterm elections are already looming large and are going to cause some doubt for moderate Democrats on going bold on climate. Well, look, I think what going bold means is is in creating jobs and investing in their communities and creating uh, this cycle of innovation and creating new American businesses and controlling the supply chains uh, for, you know, again, everything from uh, electric vehicles to uh, new sources of uh, of of supply. Of, of supply in uh, appliances and everything else. Those things can be made in America. I think what people want to see is a strong and equitable economy where people can work in decent, in decent jobs, where you, you see those jobs being uh, well-paid. And if you can deliver on those promises uh, and make this a good news story, not just a story about what we have to give up, but what we can really build, that's the question we ought to be asking. What do we need to build to solve this problem. And I think that with American ingenuity and, and American commitment, uh, again, the United States can lead the way. And that's going to be good for those districts that are the swing districts where moderate Democrats uh, need to compete, get elected, uh, and and including in, in states that know they need to transform. You know, I've spent a lot of time with Joe Manchin. And I think while, you know, I don't think you can count on him for every vote and we will have to keep uh, both working with him and pressuring him. He knows that uh, the, the world is changing. Climate change is real. He's not denying the existence, but he wants, as he should, as a, as a senator from West Virginia, he wants to know that that transition in the economy is going to also help the people in his state, that they're going to be able to, to participate in a positive way in a clean energy uh, future. And I think uh, we can make good on those promises. And that's Joe Manchin, who once shot a bullet through the cap and trade bill for a campaign ad. Um, as chair of Hillary Clinton's campaign, you surely know that in her memoir, she wrote that the campaign mistake she regrets the most is something she said in a CNN town hall. I'm the only candidate which has a policy about how to bring economic opportunity using clean, renewable energy as the key into coal country, because we're going to put a lot of coal miners and coal companies out of business. She also made it clear she doesn't want to leave those people behind. Um, and, and that didn't always get as much attention as, the, as the, the quote about putting coal miners and companies out of business. What do the Democrats have to offer to the people who are afraid that a change from fossil fuels will take away their livelihood? Look, I think I think it is these these uh, technologies, businesses, uh, manufacturing of, uh, of the future, um, in terms of uh, where we need to be thoughtful about uh, having regional strategies that both cite that work, uh, build those localized economies or those regional economies uh, to support uh, the work. That's why I think uh, Biden, again, in the campaign, put such an em emphasis on building not just the finished product, but the supply chains uh, in the United States, being leaders across the board, uh, and and creating manufacturing incentives and real incentives uh, to kind of build things in America again. 
Uh, and the Europeans are pursuing the same, it's the same sort of thing. They've got the Green Deal going in the EU, uh, and they have the same kind of problems. They have uh, communities that are likely to go through heavy transition, and they've made a commitment to make the investments in those future uh, industries, those future jobs uh, in those communities that uh, will be most effective, uh, affected going forward. But you're seeing tremendous uh, embrace now. Uh, for example, in the northeast of offshore wind, uh, there's a lot of jobs that go into that, not just in assembling the gearboxes, uh, building the, the blades. Now these things are gigantic, the offshore wind blades. Uh, uh, General Electric is just coming out with one that's, that's monumental. But the port jobs that go to, to uh, you know, and the, the Democratic governors up there are all competing with each other. You know, Cuomo wants it. Murphy wants it. You know, down in our neck of the woods, Virginia's kind of competing for those jobs. Uh, we just got to we got to get the government to be on the side of the workers in creating strategies so that that work can be done by Americans and can be obviously the assembly is going to be done uh, in the United States. Those can't, that can't be offshored, but we want to see the manufacturing done in the United States too. And I think the, the uh, Biden gets that. I think he's tried to make that promise during his camp, his campaigning, particularly in the upper Midwest. But, you know, this is, we're going to have to do this all across the country. And I think there's opportunity uh, there for, for a lot of really good union jobs in, in the offing here. The problem is that those jobs in wind in the Northeast aren't really available or helpful to a coal miner in Wyoming or, or West Virginia. Yes, there are jobs, but they're not jobs for me that if I'm going to lose my job. And so it's that personal. In the aggregate, that sounds correct. But the but for the individuals, that's a painful thing to sell because I'm a 50-year-old coal miner. I'm not going to go build wind in the Northeast. Right. But, you know, you can... You can be part of a, a electronic uh, electric vehicle supply chain uh, that's being assembled in, in you know in Toledo, Ohio, and uh, those those parts, those batteries, that that kind of work uh, can be done and and uh, with you know regional implementation. There's a lot of resource actually in West Virginia for uh, for wind and 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 other uh, sources. So I think you got to be smart about this, and you can't you can't write uh, regions of the country off. There has to be the capacity to participate uh, in that transition in a way that's positive across the board. And different places have, uh, have uh, you know, both different resources when it comes to the wind, the sun, uh, geothermal, et cetera, but also different uh, workforces, different capacities to, uh, to kind of build things. But I think there's a place for everybody across the country in, in this. And and that's the story we need to sell. And that, you know, can't just be hot air. We need to put uh, the money where uh, where the work needs to go and, and work again with governors and mayors to make sure that uh, regional development really takes off. You've been listening to Climate One. We've been talking about the Biden-Harris plan to fight climate change with John Podesta, founder of the Center for American Progress. We started the program with former New Jersey Governor Christine Todd Whitman and Chuck Hagel, former U.S. Secretary of Defense. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review in your podcast app. It really does help advance the climate conversation. 
Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Annie Chelsea edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. 